everybody, and welcome again to another episode of the Trauma Podcast. So today we have uh, a little bit off of kind of clinical topics again, um, and we're really going to talk a little bit about uh, the topic I'll call the uh, the worst of friends, perhaps trauma nursing and trauma surgeons. So if you had to pick two healthcare professions that are really crucial to optimizing the outcome of critically ill patients following trauma, for me it'd have to be trauma surgery and trauma nursing. That relationship admittedly differs by country, institution, and even individual to individual, but there are stereotypes that do exist on both sides of the fence. And today I'm I'm joined on the Trauma Podcast to discuss some of the idiosyncrasies of the trauma physician nursing collaboration with Paul Thurman, uh, an experienced trauma nurse at Shock Trauma, who has now moved into our, some of our senior leadership, Claudia Hanley, who has more recently moved into senior leadership after leaving the bedside, and my better half, uh, Leah DeBose, who's one of the best trauma ICU nurses I know, and I don't have to say that, but it does help my home living situation. As the listeners probably know, I, I'm a trauma surgeon and an intensivist who was both raised by a nurse. My mother was a nurse. I'm married to one. And, but I've had, like every other trainee, surgical trainee, uh, trauma fellow, have had to survive the gauntlet of life as a surgical resident working hand-in-hand with my nursing colleagues. So hopefully I would like to discuss some of the things that we uh, experienced today, if you guys are willing. Is that okay? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about stereotypes in our interdisciplinary relationships regarding trauma care. Now, caveat here, stereotypes are almost uh, universally kind of unfair caricatures of reality. They can be amusing if used uh, in the right context, but they can also be ugly. They can be dangerous. But when it comes to caricatures of professions, a lot of them hold true, right? So accountants like numbers. Plumbers, a lot of them have plumbers crack, right? Those are just realities (laughs) of the professions. So I'd like to take some time today to examine some of the perceived stereotypes of both our professions from both perspectives and then compare the realities from both perspectives. And it's my I hope that for both of us, all of us talking today, that will result in a better understanding of each of the key sides of our trauma team and make us better colleagues and friends. After all, if you understand the stressors and issues facing a colleague, you understand them better uh, as people and you can communicate optimally in the context of that understanding. Well, and that uh, frankly results in something kind of special. So let's start by picking on the trauma surgeons because we deserve it most. Claudia, uh, from your perspective, I'll start with you. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking stereotypes here. What is the over the top? trauma surgery stereotype. You're an ICU, you go back to your bedside days mm-hmm. not that long ago, and you see the over-the-top trauma surgery resident fellow attending come through the door. What does that picture look like? Paint it for me. So, what I see is my patient sleeping peacefully in the bed, and here comes the trauma surgeon who goes in, doesn't say a word to the patient, rips open the curtain, rips off the blankets and just starts examining and poking at the wound and then you have your patient going nuts on the ventilator and now I have to run in and start sedating the patient. Okay. That is the typical. Just like a stormtrooper kicking in the door. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) No warning, no word, no nothing. No warning or no word. Okay. All right. What else, Paul? What other stereotype? What would you add to the stereotype? Um... Every uh, disposable supply is a completely open and unused. <laughs> oh, that's a good plug. Gotcha. Get all your ducks in a row, but don't use any of them. Yes. Right. Okay. I got you. These are the kind of people who leave a lot of leftovers on their plate, right? It's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leah, what, what's your... I think it's kind of, to piggyback on what they said, they're very task-driven. The patient is... I don't want to say they're no longer a human being, but they are just bombarded with tasks from their senior colleagues and that's where 
They just come in and kind of try to start doing stuff. The patient is a wound that the that they're attached to. The tubes. And That's a good analogy. So they're a wound yeah. or a chest tube that is attached. They're, yeah. they're ta- the patient's just something attached to the chest tube they have to manage. Yeah. Uh, very interesting. And then sometimes when you try and stop and advocate for the patient, they say, "My chief told me to do this. I mm-hmm. need to get it done." Yeah. 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 <laughs> a lot of different stressors. So let me throw a couple of them that I hear in talking with nursing colleagues a little bit out. Uh, the others out there, and I'll get your comments on it. So. Uh, we have the stereotype being surgery residents, fellows, even attendings, and not being the best at even acknowledging those around them, right? It's all about that chest tube or that procedure that's mm-hmm. coming in the room. Do you guys find that that's the case? They'll come in, they don't ask your name, they don't ask, find out who the nurse is, any of that stuff. Is that a true stereotype? 100%. Most of the time, yes. Most of the time? Okay. Um, I, I think that another stereotype I hear often is that we step into that ICU space and we make a bunch of changes. I've seen people even do that. I don't know how people haven't been struck by lightning doing this, but I've seen people make changes in the vent and people oh. make changes to the pump and not tell anybody. Absolutely. Neurosurgery yeah. yeah. residents in trauma are, are notorious for that, where they will come in. Which one's neurosurgery, you say? Neurosurgery, yeah. okay. stop your sedation, yep. walk away, and then you don't know why your patient starts going buck wild. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's crazy. All right. Good. Okay. <laughs> And I think you, you guys hit, uh, touched on a little bit for that for trainees, they're often more worried about doing what their boss wants now than collecting inputs from the bedside, yes. asking you your opinion, probably getting information about the exam from you as opposed to kind of waking the, turning the station off and doing their Depends own. Depends on the resident. Yeah. A surgical resident, yes. A rotating resident from another discipline that rotates onto the trauma service can be different. Mm-hmm. Pediatric residents dentistry residents they sometimes are a little bit more timid and they will find yes they, they're they're more timid and will sort of like scurry around and so that level of comfort for at least being in the institution just implies that they own the place yeah. right your mom is going to pick up after him and daddy's going to turn off the lights and take care of everything where somebody comes to be a guest in their house maybe they're more thoughtful yeah okay all right, so did we hit the, the generalities of the stereotypes for trauma? So now let's flip it on the nurses. And I'm out number three to one in here, so I'm very conscious <laughs> of that. But it does fall on me to build the stereotype of trauma nursing for consideration and discussion. And I want you guys to look in the mirror and look back. And again, these are stereotypes that uh, that we talk all the time. And there's like any stereotype, small element of truth. And you guys tell me where that element is. So admittedly, at Shock Trauma 2 is very unique because it's very unique other, relative to other trauma centers. I've been in a lot of level one trauma centers in my military travels. The nursing corps here is more empowered uh, and has been part of the growing this institution, perhaps more so than any other place. So it's very different, very different culture. So the stereotype here doesn't apply to a lot of the other places I've been to. But I'm going to make some generalities to what the trauma nursing stereotype is. And the key points, I think, would be, I'll start with the good. I think our ner- uh, trauma nurses are tendency, have a tendency to work very hard. They're forced to by their career prov- uh, choice in many cases. They're pretty strong advocates for their patients. Mm-hmm. I would uh, argue that to a fault sometimes. I mean, they will fight you. If they think you're not doing what's right for the patient, they're going to speak up. Clinically sharp. Part of that is the process by which you get to the ICU through here. You kind of have to run your own gauntlet to get to the nursing hierarchies or the prime spots to be at. Let's go to the not so good, perhaps, or at least the uh, aggravating as, as on the surgery side, right? So um, I think that the nurses sometimes are so clinically sharp that they are not afraid to let you know it. And that is, especially as an outsider, I can remember my first coming to shock trauma, stepping in those rooms, I could, I might as well have been the lowest paid worker in the entire system. <laughs> 
the way that I was spoken to. <laughs> very true. Right? It's very right? true. Uh, yeah. You've got to yeah. earn your respect. And yeah. um, a lot of a lot of strong opinions about what right is. And even in our units, we have, for those listening, we have like four units of shock trauma. Each unit has three or four tendings that kind of do things. And they've mm-hmm. there's a pattern to practice and approaches in each unit, even individualized. And when you switch between units or you come from outside like I did, do you do anything that's different? It may be sound science. It may be a good approach, but it's not the right. It's not the shock trauma way, sugar. Right, so right. it's that gets to be a problem. I, if I had to pick one analogy, and Leah and I, I talked about this. I read in this pastor. Uh, I think it's akin to walking into a wolf's den. Right, so what do wolves do? You got a pack of wolves. You're walking into their den. They're going to look at you like you ain't from around here. You're sus- they're suspicious, right? They're circling. They're going to defend their ground. You're not coming into their den, right? And and poop in the corner. No, that's their place. <laughs> Um, they will eat your face at a perceived slight or real or imagined, yes, right? Yes. And they're already typically amped up. They've just come back from a hunt. They're, they're circling already. You don't need much excuse to get them amped up even further. But once you're in a struggle with one of them, there's no, you can't go back. Because you can't turn one, there's another one circling uh, around behind you, right? So a pack of wolves, that's how you get eaten by wolves. It's not the one in front of you, it's the one behind you that gets you. And then when frustration or some kind of issue takes hold in the unit, it's it's a small pack, it's a rampant disease. It runs through the whole pack. So if you get one, you frustrate one nurse, so they get frustrated by one issue, You're done. It's it, the whole unit's done. The yeah. whole disease is packed. You, there's no vaccine that's gonna spread. Are those all fair characterizations? Uh, yeah, I think the worst thing you could say to a trauma nurse is, at my organization, we do it this way. Mm-hmm. And they're gonna be very quick to tell you, we are in my house now, and yeah. this is how we do it. I absolutely agree. Well, and, shock trauma, this is the way we do it. So just forget about any other way that yeah. you learned how to do it. But, you know, it's down to this building, this unit, this room, this mm-hmm. patient. And everybody has this terrible. We had, I had a great one with Scott Weingart. You guys remember Scott, mm-hmm. maybe as a yeah. fellow here. We mm-hmm. talked about ER. And uh, his natural tendency is to go to the ERs, my space. You're coming into my space. Surgeons, because we bounce around so much, we may view the ORs our space, quote unquote, but honestly, I don't, not really. Um, so we're guests everywhere we go. So it's just, it's interesting, a different approach on things. So let's encapsulate this. I've developed, so I've kind of developed some rules, I think, that would be useful for the surgical training. And I'd like to help you have you guys hit and see if these are hold true. So the severely injured trauma patient is challenging on both sides for both roles. And I personally think that we work better together when we understand the perspectives. I know I do better when I understand what you guys are going through because they're different stressors. And perhaps more importantly, the demands and the stressors on our partners. Uh, both, all of you folks are experienced in creating successful physician-nurse interactions. And I value your input on the following suggestions I have for trainees mainly, but physicians in general, to consider when collaborating with uh, nursing colleagues in patient care. So these are my 10 things to consider, if you will. Okay? I'd like your thoughts on each. All right? Number one, simple rule. Address your nursing colleagues by name so that you can make that connection. It's not even in there COVID right now where you can't shake hands, you can't really get close, you can at least look down. I'm bad, I'm terrible with names. You can ask my residents on patients because they change name from Trauma Doe to John Smith to their actual name. Uh, I remember injury patterns for patients better than I do other people. But if you talk to the nurse by their name, and I personally think there's no shame. People say, well, I can't remember her name and I can't see her name tag. Stop and look at their name tag. I don't think that's a crime and I think people actually appreciate taking that moment. But acknowledge who they are and that they have an identity is a small step. You guys agree? Is that a frustration you see sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. You can also stop by the, the 
list of patients and usually that nurse's name's written up. Yep, depending on where you work and what you do, there's always a board that says who has what room, so you right. can cheat in that direction too. <laughs> I love it, absolutely. Uh, I say number two here, always begin each interaction with nursing by introducing yourself and who you are if you don't know the colleague and ask them about their impression of how the care is going and, um, and it's a sandwich to me, right? So you ask them on the front end, anything you need, what do you see that we need to address today? And then on the back end, anything I missed, right? So a sandwich, if you will, of what can I do for you? Is that a very reasonable approach to take? Yeah, I think it shows you value their opinion too. Now that that's hard to tips for you from you guys because that's hard to do sometimes. You guys are often two to one, right, or busy with another patient or helping out. It's a team sport. I see yeah. nursing, right? So you're mm-hmm. rolling another patient, and oftentimes I don't think we get the the length of interactions or the depth of interactions we would like. Any tips for you guys on how to do that? Just like you said, identifying who you are is mm-hmm. a huge part. Um, I mean, residents, fellows, they come up to us all the time and they're like, "Who's so and so?" and I'm the nurse. Well, I'm here to do... Who are you? So just identifying yourself, what you're here to do. um, Yeah. Kind of give us a little leeway if we can't do something right then and there. And just be like, it's okay, I'll come back. Not be a little demanding on, I need this, this, and this right now. Because I have to do this right now. Yeah, and coordinating things too. I harken yeah. I, I, I back to Paul's comment about don't get caught with the, it's like live PD. If you get caught in the room and they pull back the curtain, and I can hear that curtain go back and you've got a hand in a wound, it's live PD, brother. You've got two options. You either assume the position and take the beating or you run. And you can, there's really no place to run in hospital. It is straight up live PD. Pretty accurate. If you get caught that way. Okay, so let's say that a nursing colleague uh, pages you and you can't get back to them or be as responsive to their needs as you would like. And this is tip number three here. I would say when when you do finally get around engaging to them, explain why you weren't immediately responsive. Just say that up front. I'm sorry I didn't call you back because of this. That way they can understand the burden of your job uh, and if you, that's all the way you guys can understand what we're doing or what we're going through each day is if we give a glimpse into it, right? Yeah. Is that a pretty reasonable thing yeah, to yeah. do? Yeah. I think there's just gap where surgeons, we move around a lot, we interact with a lot of different people, and we have a lot of different balls in the air. Nurses, I honestly, I think it'd have it worse because I can move from one. If one ball is frustrating me, I can move from that ball. I can put it down the shelf and juggle the other three. If you guys can't get away, if you got a bad patient or a frustrating patient, there's no darn escaping from that whole situation, right? So mm-hmm. if they're ringing the call bell every two seconds and it's just no getting away. So it's different frustrations. You guys are more of a, like a dose of one drug overdose and we are getting polypharmacy on the other side to use a pharmaceutical analogy here. It's ju- I just think explaining the context on both sides. How's your day going? Here's how mine's going. It ain't going too hot. At least we understand each other. Um, Number four, as you develop a daily plan, think about how it will impact nursing colleagues when you can. Some of the simple things in this regard make a big difference. I think immediately of consolidating med admin times. I don't want to write a medic- give this medication at one, this one at two, this one at three, this one at four, and roll the patient at 3.30. What other mistakes do you guys see that could be simple things that could be fixed in that regard? Uh, I can hark back on my TRU nursing days, and the one thing that frustrated me the most is when you took a patient to CT, and you came back and then they said, oh, we added a chest onto that. And then you had to pack them up and take them again. Um, just, yes. So 
really, especially when you ask them, are you sure we're getting a belly? They're getting a dilute. You sure you don't want a chest? No, 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 no. And then you come back and they say, we want a chest. Yeah, so take, taking the time, yes. even huddling with the nursing colleague or your boss or whatever. I think a lot of residents have the perspective they want to take initiative and do everything that they need to do with the minimum amount of radiation, but then they they don't confer with their bosses beforehand, you know, their mentors yeah. beforehand. But you so. also, they also have to realize, and it's hard, especially if you're visiting, the amount of work that goes into, it's not just going to CT, yeah. especially if your patient's very sick. In this institution, on the trauma side, it's not just going to MRI. There is, I have to wrangle up extension tubing. I have to have enough extension tubing because the IV pumps and poles can't go into the MRI suite. They have to be outside. Disconnect, being able to disconnect them. If a patient is very dependent on their vasoactives, I can't undo vasoactives to prime the tubing and put them on and off of it while I get them on and off the MRI table. And our MRI in this institution is not close. I think that's and true in the middle most of the And yeah. on night yeah. shift, I'm down there by myself and the closest provider is over in the ICU where we are in the TRU all the way across the hospital. It's a full city block. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true okay. at most hospitals. And and the other side of that is when you leave, if you have a two to one, somebody's got to cover your patient. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. And doing that at a time when the staffing is perhaps the least or the tempo is the highest is probably not ideal. Well, I mean, I'll give you a classic example we see all the time is a patient's getting better, but they need a trach change, whether it be they're going to a metal trach or they're downsizing their trach, whatever it is. It's not, and the classic thing the surgery residents do, we're going to do a trach change. I need this. That's not a simple, let me go to the closet and go get it. Most of the time we have to send, find somebody to send to central sterile supply to get that size trach or to get that metal trach in, it's not as easy as the words coming out of your mouth are. So kind of just being aware It does of just happen? You mean when I say get this done, it does just fingers. happen? So I think it's just... You guys are bursting bubbles huh? for me too, yeah. Okay. So I think, yes, we are willing to help them do that. And we're, if you, So if you come up to me and say, hey, we're going to change the trach this afternoon or we want to change a trach tomorrow, just give us a heads up and it's goes a lot more smoother than I need this trick now yeah or you just got the patient out of bed into the chair which was a 10-minute ordeal and took three people to help you do and they come up to do a procedure that they could have warned you about mm-hmm. when they were on rounds say hey after we're done with rounds we're gonna uh Change his change back. back or yeah. change a trach or put it in a line or something yeah. like that and there's no communication. So. Yeah. Because yeah. right now, if you do that, you're going to get met with a resounding no. no. You can yeah. come back and, later. And there's some overlap on these <laughs> 10 points. But now if we move on to five, I kind of already hit on it. It's basically understanding the stressors of not leave, being able to leave bedside, right? Mm-hmm. I am always still amazed. There are, and I know that you, they shouldn't do this, and you guys don't advocate for doing this, but there's still people who get so invested, involved in their job, and feel so passionate about taking care of their patient who's high maintenance, they won't eat, they won't pee. Mm-hmm. That is amazing to me in 2020, but it's true, and it's not that it's not pushed on administration says you shouldn't do that. Every place I've ever been, but it's just such a driven field, and it's a culture change. We see a little bit of that in surgery too. Um, I think just the, the surgery residents appreciating what they're walking into. But what are the, we teach residents that what are the signs and symptoms? So you walk into a patient, you can tell the patient is in shock because they have some pallor, they're sweaty. What are the signs and symptoms of a stressed out nurse as I'm walking up to the room that I, you think some surgeons will, uh, 
will miss would miss. And we remember we got a lot of oblivious people thinking a lot of different things because I'm thinking about the four patients that I just managed to come up and to see this one. So what are the key signs that I can look at? Is it the frazzled hair? Is it the look? Is there a specific look on the face? The the uh, the resting nurse face that I they think, have. Uh, managing multi-trauma critical care for 10 years just being able to walk out and see the look on people's faces now that's a little intuitive because you know their personalities you know their pressure points like i could look at your wife and i'd say you need to take a walk right now sure uh i do think it's the uh i think it's sometimes it's as subtle as they're oblivious as the nurses in the middle of turning a 500 pound patient and they come in and be like i need to do x y and z right next door i mean it's just read the room sometimes it's not even obvious signs that i think frustrate people the most or they see a nurse finally eating and they come up and say hey we're going to change this wound back can you come in and do x y and z um just sometimes it's easy as reading reading the room yeah. And being considerate of what someone's doing at the time. Yeah. And I think just even asking what, you know, mm-hmm. what are you, what have you got going on right now? Here's what I need to get done. How can I help you get done what you need to get done to, to work? And along those lines, I'll move to six. And, and this is the, uh, where I talk about my code brown rule. <laughs> so if you have to think of one thing that is the most, uh, probably the least uh, desirable to do. It's a code brown in a lot of these patients. I would say, and, and it simply rolling and helping the patients, etc., goes a long way. And maybe it's not code brown, but when you guys need an extra body, if you're in the unit, especially as an ICU fellow, and you've got a few minutes to go and just walk in and help roll the patient, I would say those small acts of kindness will reap the biggest rewards for you and your patients in the ICU. You guys agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Asking people to do, uh, show, showing the willingness to do things outside of your described career field. I think a lot of docs some of them get squeamish by that stuff let's be honest if i had to pick uh, between nurses and doctors who has a stronger stomach as a whole i would say nurses uh but um which is paradoxical among surgeons but it's a nice controlled environment some people have this thing about poop some people have to think about snot some people have to think about feet you know whatever it is but uh, get in and fight those fears and, and help embrace that well i think another thing is not just the code brown stuff but if you're a surgical resident coming up to change a wound especially on someone's backside if you see that it's going to take four or five of us to roll and turn this patient or the patient's combative you could help us out i mean nine times out of ten they kind of just stand there and watch us and get ready which most of the time in the icu we will have everything ready for them that's what we try that's how we try to be helpful we'll have everything ready we'll have everything laid out that's not always the case but um nine times out of ten it is but don't sit there and just watch us turn a 300 pound patient i'm always impressed when i talk about the rewards that been and that reaps down the road nurse colleagues remember that stuff because honestly i've done code browns with people i'm like man what the hell i'm gonna sort of get on there get in there be able to sport we'll make it kind of you know quick entertaining and fun and get it done as much as those things can be nurses remember that stuff they do yeah so it's it's really i think powerful um i always sometimes i forget that until i meet somebody say yeah you helped with that code brown six months ago i'm like i don't remember what six months ago So let's, um, the other thing I'll talk about, rule number seven, or tip number seven here, electronic medical record. I don't think any of us love it. but And I would say it's challenging in our surgical fields for the surgery residents and whatnot. But looking at what you folks have to do on the nursing side on a daily basis, 
I would say take a day and try to do the nursing charting or see what they have to do every couple of hours. It will change your perspective as a physician on the demands of the electronic medical record. You guys, I mean, it's, there's always the other side of the fence, right? We have other things to do that you guys certainly are a burden in electronic medical record, but that's, um, you know, you get, agree that that's probably a, a fair statement? Yes. EMR has not always been beneficial for uh, certainly nursing workload. Yeah. Right. I'm getting a lot of nodding heads. They're getting quiet. I'm wearing them down. Yes, I forgot. We can't, yeah. They can't see us. Yes. It's yeah. worse. There's no video involved. It's a podcast. Um, number eight, so don't do anything physically to the patient. We've touched on this a couple times. Even if it's a simple dressing change, much less a chest tube or drain removal or stopping the sedation for a patient who gets agitated without letting the nurse know. That seems common sense. Is that one of the common things that you guys yes. see? number one. And that is the number one rule. Depending on the time of day don't yes. even go in the patient's room without checking with the nurse first sleep stuff gotcha yep um so next one number nine don't pay ugly forward and what i mean by this is if you've had a bad interaction with someone else which since we move around the hospital so much and this holds true on both sides don't let it bleed into your next interaction with one of your nursing colleagues it's just a general rule in life and it's hard to follow sometimes in the hospital environment uh, but I think it holds true. You know, get get glad in the britches that you're mad in before you go on to the next interaction. Uh, the corollary for nursing colleagues to understand about physicians is that while we are dealing primarily with a, um, while you're dealing with a small number of patients very intensively, maybe even one very intensively, on a daily basis, most physicians deal with many more folks, and this is a lot more interactions that can go bad and influence your mood. So most of the time, if you're dealing with a gruff physician, it's probably not about you. Especially if they're walking in the room gruff, I can guarantee it's not about you. They probably got their butt chewed by their attending. They had a bad interaction with another consultant service. Nurse down the hall chomped them up a little bit. Now you're getting the leftovers. So that is true on both sides of the fence and something I think is is key. Uh, And then final number 10, communicate, communicate, communicate at every turn. What are you going to do today? What are your concerns? You will get more clues to when a patient is having a problem. You guys all agree with this? Yes. Yes. A lot of nodding heads. So you'll get get more clues. You'll have a better uh, outcome uh, and a better relationship, better work environment, which leaks into a better life environment at home. I mean, everything stems from communication in my book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's a bit of a long list, but I do feel strongly that those are kind of the considerations. So what did I miss? in those 10 rules for success. And some of them we hit multiple times in different ways. I think you have a pretty comprehensive list. You did a nice job. Yeah. Okay. Just don't forget that both of you are both people and some people tend to put one role higher than the other. Yes. And whenever you try to act superior to one role, um, that often doesn't work out well. No, you get into a contest and it just doesn't work out very well I agree with you yeah well and just the age-old put yourself in the other person's shoes I know I was guilty of this for the longest time admittedly probably till I got with you I was never on the physician side I always kind of looked at it from my perspective but looking at it from their perspective will go a long way 
Yeah, just understanding each other and what we go through, I yeah. think, uh, has reaped tremendous benefits. I think you, if you do your ICU fellowship and you embrace all the opportunities as an ICU fellow, you get that because you're really stuck in the unit with them and you're feeling this exposure. Surgery residents. I will agree with that. Takes time, you know. Yeah. Some of them get it early. Some of them have Aspergers and and don't, you know. So, <laughs> and also people from different institutions, different cultures, yes. have different cultures. So yeah, that yeah. Doctor seems to be over the nurse. Mm-hmm. So we kind of hit the high points of what I wanted to discuss from the from the topic perspective. But we have on this podcast what we call our random questions at the end, and that lets our listeners get to know you as people, because we are all people, as Paul put uh, very well said. Um, but this time, instead of asking kind of, I ask some goofy questions like, is a hot dog a sandwich? I have my own personal opinions. It's meat between bread. I think that's enough said. But we're going to talk a little bit about questions relative to the trauma nursing field instead, which remain, some of them remain a mystery to me. And I honestly want to know the answers to these. Um, so number one, uh, the classic stereotype of the night shift nurse, the nurse who prefers night shifts, is that they are the types of nurses who are clinically sharp, but really just aren't that passionate or as tender with those elements of family interaction that other folks have. Is that stereotype true? Yes. Is it? So people are kind of drawn to that approach. Well, not necessarily always families, but people work night shift usually don't like the array of people there during the day shift and it's more so is they want to take care of their patient have time with their patient they don't want PT coming in once you've done something to get them up they don't want OT coming in they don't want to do all that they just want to take care of their patient they also tend to um, want to avoid administration yes okay so problems with authority a little bit yes, just a, touch. yes. a little bit of the rebel yes. at the night shift okay what other nursing stereotypes what about traveling nurses to me traveling nurses always seem like these carefree spirits who want to go and see the world and they always got these great backstories we don't get a lot of them at shock trauma but are they a unique stereotype too I think the stereotype of travel nurses is they're in it for the lifestyle, not necessarily about the patients. So I think on a unit, there's a lot, of, not a lot of trust with the travel nurses. In and terms they're of, not going to get the great assignment. Yeah. They're going to get the, both patients have been there for six weeks and they're either VRE or... They're the new wolf in the pack. Yeah. They're missing out. They don't they're, trust them yet. You, you haven't know, sniffed them They're enough. getting dumped on. They're getting you dumped on. But I will them. say they have the personality to do it. They don't. Yeah, they don't Some mind. Do. They are very highly, at least the two that we have right now. They're they adapted really well. They um, if they've done they it, and stayed in it. It seems like they get that that's what's yeah. I happen. think they know what they expect once they've been doing it for a while, and they're not in it for the job. They're in it to see the country or sure to do all that. Yeah. So, what other nursing stereotypes in the units? Well, trauma tends to be male dominated, as far as nursing wise. Yeah. You'll, you'll see, I mean, males tend to be between 3 and 5% of all the nurses. However, in trauma field, there's 10 to 15% of the nurses are male. Does that dynamic change the dynamic of the intensive care unit in trauma? It, I think... It can. I think yes. It. I think I can tell you as a manager, I often liked the dynamic because I felt like it cut down on the... Crazy. All the female. Um, <laughs> what do you mean to cut down on all the female? That's it, very, it cut down you're being very political here. Yes, political. sometimes, you know, it can become a catty environment. Um, so... 
However, there's times sometimes where you have male nurses that are, are, are just as bad, they, you know, yeah. that you need to cut that down. Um, I think sometimes, too, having more males, you tend to have a little, there's a perception that their practice is sloppier, and they're more of cowboys where they don't really look at the orders. It's kind of a preference, not a order. And... Uh, We'll go in and just kind of start doing things. So there's some stereotypes there we can I will say, into. and yes. I hate that this is also a thing, but I almost feel safer on our trauma unit sometimes when there are more men because the reality is patients, violent patients, they respect male authority a little bit more or fear, fear that male authority a little bit more than females. I mean, it is not always the case, but... I've seen, I have seen paradoxically some patients that we deal with that are actually more combative with men because they're used to that environment on the streets where they're, yeah, if they come to the wrong true. culture, but they listen to mama. Yeah, yeah. And when one of you ladies gets in there and starts telling them, nah, knock this crap out, they settle down immediately. So there's 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 different. No two people the same, but yeah. I can I can certainly understand the safety potential issue. Let's talk about another category. So nurse practitioners in the ICU. These, from your perspective, are they they used to be one of you? A lot of them, right? Mm-hmm. Are they perpetual allies, or do they become one of them in terms of like the physicians? They become one of them. And why do you think they forget the challenges? I don't know, because every nurse that's worked for me, that's gone on to be a nurse practitioner, I said always remember you're a nurse first. And it just, it's inevitably something that they forget what it's like. And I think that's what's as frustrating to the bedside nurses when they do need help with a code brand, the nurse practitioner will walk away and ask somebody else to go in there. When I think that they could take some of the pointers that you gave for the trauma surgeons. I do think our nurse practitioners in particular, I think they, they, when I was thinking about this the other day, they are the only continuity of care. Besides yeah. the nurses, they are the only continuity of care in this building for providers. Our attendings change week to week. Mm-hmm. Our nurse, our residents, fellows, our nurse practitioners don't. They know what happened to this patient three weeks ago. Well, sometimes um, nursing is even a continuity because you work three days a week and yeah. you may work Monday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah. yeah. So... So the nurse practitioners there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We often feel the most comfortable with them as nurses, talking to them, and because we feel like they can relate. They were there at one point. Um, but that can kind of be a problem as well because I've seen them be constantly bombarded in the ICU. And when they're on service during the day, they take half the patients and then the residents or the fellows take half the patients. Um, So nurses will go to them about patients that aren't even their patients because we just feel more comfortable going to them. And I remember when I was on the IMC, I was always taught, go to the nurse practitioner first because they'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're an institution with visiting residents and fellows who don't know the system very well and our NPs are the only continuity for the system too. You know that they're gonna get the job done the first time you ask and you're not gonna have to, so. I think it'd be, the more we talk about it, the more this, it'd be interesting to talk to some more trauma NPs and see their perspective it's on it. It's interesting. I think on the IMCs, that now that you bring that up, the nurses see them as so their life units, not Yeah, ICU so units. our acute care and our intermediate care units see the MPs as a lifeline. 
it's critical care that I think sometimes when they were colleagues and now all of a sudden they're managing the care, there's a little more rub between the nurses and nurse practitioners. And not that they don't get along, it's just that I think they value them, they are the consistency, but they kind of, there's a sense that they forgot what it was like to be a bedside nurse when they were just a bedside nurse a year or two ago. Yeah. Yeah. What about, so I grew up in an era where you had, or started at least in an era, where you had a pager they gave you a number, and then you had to call the nurse and actually talk on the phone with the nurse. Imagine that. Nowadays, we use we use a, a, a proprietary platform that where you basically it's text communication, mm-hmm. right? So, is this better or worse from the nursing perspective? I love it. What are the pros and cons? There's got to be cons too. What are the pros? Give me the pros. The pros, the particular system that we use, I can see whether you read it or not. Um. I know from the physician side or from the NP side, they hate it because it's constantly going off. But from a nursing perspective, um, I think for newer nurses as well, I'm still used to doing the pager thing, so I've had to get used to it. But um, from a newer nurse perspective, I think they feel more comfortable texting somebody. Um, because it's not that... I think it makes them more approachable. Yes. Okay. I think what it's about? also a generational thing yeah. where people are more... They're more comfortable with texting in general. Um, but I think things can sometimes get lost in translation, yes. too. Or they can be taken the wrong way if it's on text via actually speaking to someone. I think it also has enhanced the... The delivery of communication so that it's um, the response time's quicker because you used to be on eternal hold. So mm-hmm. you call back to the unit to say, This is Dr. DeBose, mm-hmm. and you had no idea who it was that paged you. All you had they was had a to number. Track down and, yeah. So you'd be on hold forever. Yeah. Um, you'd also get gang paged. Yeah, well, I mean, any way you look at it, yeah. whether it's the, we use the Doc Halo system, whether it's that Doc Halo message thing going off or pager going off, it's a sound that at some point on the receiving end, uh, you just, and you guys are learning this on the admin side later, you're going to learn this on the NP side when you finish, but it's, it just gets grading some days. Like mm-hmm. it's over and over and over again. You just want to change. I've, there have been days where I've taken my pager and changed the pager sound three times just because you hear a different sound. So it doesn't feel like the ice pick in the brain. But um, yeah, so. What uh, next question is pretty broad. The last question here. You guys have been fantastic. I think I'm better for having had this discussion. I hope everybody else is better for listening to it. But trauma nursing is uh, almost certainly like any other career field going to change over the next decade or so. So I'll start with you, Claudia. What do you see coming down the pipe or how do you think nursing, trauma nursing is going to change in the next decade? I think um, we are no longer going to see nurses being here for 20 30 years and uh, our physicians struggle with that especially our senior physicians because there is a trust factor that goes back and forth Um, and also ultimately worrying about who's going to want to do this because I think more people are going into advanced practice or going back for administrative work or leaving the bedside so what's the shortage going to look like so I think we're just going to have constant churn and turnover. Yeah, Paul, what do you think? And as the churn continues, the level of autonomy that the nurses practice with is going to continue to, to get eroded and yeah. decrease. And so 
when you decrease the level of autonomy that people practice with, it decreases the job satisfaction. Yeah. So, yeah. and you're going to see the increase of uh, gang paging into because they're not going to have the same level of experience with types of situations. And I think to kind of piggyback off that, there are nurses that have been here for five, ten plus years, and the gap between the amount of nurses that are there versus the amount of nurses that have only been here a year or two is widening, Um, and the trust factor between nursing colleagues is also starting to break down, which creates this cycle of mistrust. Yeah, you know, I, I, having moved around a lot, you guys have all grown up in shock trauma. You've all worn paint for the majority of your careers, for the most part, mm-hmm. right? So I, it's different at every place. I think the challenges are different every place. I do see, um, but I see some of the themes that you guys are talking about. Well, guys, this, this has been fantastic. It's everything that I hoped it would be. Uh, maybe I'll re- hopefully our residents will listen to it, to our 10 rules of success, success. And we'll see if it changes culture any, or at least makes people better on both sides of the fence. For, uh, for the listeners, thanks for listening. This has been, the, again, another episode of the Trauma Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere you consume trauma uh, podcasts or any other podcast for that matter. And if you have any ideas, questions, comments, or concerns, and you want to email us, you can do so at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. Again, all lower case the trauma podcast at yahoo.com thanks for listening